Today, I'm joined by editor, publisher, author and poet John Freeman to celebrate and bid adieu to Freeman's, the literary journal which for eight years has been at the forefront of promoting new literary talent, while also encouraging established literary talent to venture onto fascinating new ground. Over 10 themed issues, Freeman's has published groundbreaking fiction, compelling nonfiction and beautiful poetry with a determinedly internationalist and diverse editorial line. But as with all good things, apparently, Freeman's is coming to an end. Taking conclusions as its theme, issue 10 manages to be both reflective and appropriately elegiac, but also determinedly forward-looking. And the lineup is as stellar as ever. Among the many contributors we find Sandra Cisneros, Dave Eggers, Mieko Kawakami, Barry Lopez, Rebecca Mackay, Colin McCann, and of course, the writer who has become such a mainstay of Freeman's, he has almost become its mascot, the genius that is Alexander Hemmen. John, welcome back to Shakespeare and Company podcast. Oh, it's so nice to be back, to see you sitting there in the bookshop. <laughs> I've been doing this job now for almost eight years. And I remember one of the first experiences I had and one of the sort of early events that I put on were events around uh, around Freeman's. And so like the my, my time in this job and this journal are essentially, um, you know, we've, we've been living sort of parallel um, parallel lives. Can I ask you to go back to the founding of Freeman's. So you had been editor at Granta uh, up until 2013. Um, what was it that motivated you to, you know, particularly at this time when the, the internet was sort of really sort of uh, taking over everything and sort of the future of writing seemed to be online. What made you want to launch this kind of, in one sense, quite classical uh, literary journal? You know, I don't mean this to sound as um, sweetening as it is, um, but it was having events at places like Shakespeare, having conversations with writers over dinners and meals. Um, we had a lot of events for Granta. Mm -hmm. um, and in the course of doing those, having chats, um, listening to writers tell stories, um, listening to them offstage interact by telling stories, I realized that literary journals, by and large, the ones that I was reading, as much as I enjoyed them, there wasn't a journal that felt as warm and as intimate as those spaces are mm -hmm. when you get into a really good event and someone is maybe telling something for their first time aloud or they're not telling you a story to charm or to, to fleece you for anything. They're, they're communicating. Mm -hmm. um, and in, when you're at a dinner or where you're with friends, people are telling stories in those modes, very often to, to say something they cannot say another way. So mm -hmm. they, they tell it to you in a story. And you mentioned Sasha Hemmen, Alexander Hemmen, who's a friend of mine and I'm godparent to his two daughters. And we've had numerous events and I've, you know, bumbled and bounced along the roads as like his human sidecar for going on 15 years <laughs> now for various events and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it's with Sasha that I watched this happen probably most clearly I had a dinner with him and his family in London with um, uh, his, his father and my father. And I, I watched at the end of the meal as um, they sort of passed the, the narrative conch around. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to create a journal that felt like that, that you could enter like it was a dinner party that you were invited, that you could participate in some other imaginary way, but that also you would watch as the sort of power of narrative, hopefully, um, and writing in, in general, because there was poetry in Freeman's, carried you along and, and didn't soothe you, but simply 
could also provide the comfort that that narrative provides. Mm-hmm. And did that feed into the the selection of writers? So you say you know you have this. Um... This long relationship, this long friendship with um, with Sasha, and I, I refer to him almost as the the mascot of Freeman's. I don't know if I'd use that word uh, <laughs> to his face, but like he um, he he always felt like to me when every time I'd pick up um, a copy of Freeman's, I because I, I think he's in every issue except maybe the 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 new writing issue. I, am I right about that? That's correct. And oh, and is, California. Yeah. He, ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not his uh, his center of interest. Although he did shoot an episode of um, that show he wrote with David Mitchell um, and Lana Wachowski there. Um, mm. uh, I forget the name of the TV show, but yeah, there is there is there is somewhere a cameo of Sasha Hemmen standing in City Lights bookshop. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, concerning the selection of writers then, was your approach, because you wanted to create this kind of warm, sort of welcoming and a sort of friendly environment, did you tend to first then approach writers that you you knew that you'd worked with that you, that you might in for example constructing a dinner party invitation list that you knew would work well together? Yes and no. I mean, yes as in it helped to know some of the writers when I first began to get the magazine going mm-hmm. for the arrival issue. Um this is going to sound absurd, but I had worked with Haruki Murakami before when I was mm-hmm. at Granta and I very much um wanted him to be part of the first issue and arrival as a theme hadn't been settled. So when I um, heard from a friend that there was a story he had written translated and not yet published, um, I basically built the theme in part around what that story was about. And it was uh, the the great story, Drive My Car, which has since Mm -hmm. become a movie. Um, And Haruki Murakami's piece and a few other pieces came in and, and out of that grew the theme. Um, but then there were people that subsequently um, were part of that issue, writers like uh, Hassan Zaktan, who I did not know um, and who I was able to bring into the fold uh, once the theme had been settled. And the thing I think that unites a lot of the writers that are in these issues is is a certain kind of intimacy and orality. Mm-hmm. It, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call Haruki Murakami an oral writer, but there is a uh, deceptive simplicity to a syntax that feels spoken. Mm-hmm. And I think that explains to some degree the magic of his enchantment um, when all you have is someone sitting there making spaghetti in an apartment in Tokyo. Yeah. And you think, why, why am I within a paragraph of reading this? Why am I so gripped? Uh, and di- oralities have different qualities, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And so part of the pleasure of making the magazine over time has been how to thread and weave those um, and to make them into a kind of coherent sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of, one of the things that I've always appreciated about Freeman's as well is the way, I mean, obviously it's easy to cite, you know, the writers like Murakami who are sort of like these these global stars. Uh, but there are other writers who I had not heard of before, uh, before picking up the magazine and who I've since, you know, become... Um, uh, sort of admirers of, I think, um, I think Valeria Luizelli, I first came to through, um, through, through your work uh, on Freeman's. But one thing when you pick up the issues as a reader is you don't find a hierarchy in that respect. I mean, all of the names are listed on the, on the cover and, and, you know, sometimes a, um, you know, uh, one of these global stars will just have a sort of a, a small contribution. Sometimes it'll be bigger and it feels like everything is set on a, kind of on a level and to come back to that dinner party um 
uh, analogy, almost like, you know, the, the table is round in a sense. There's no head of the table to, to an issue of Freeman's. That's the goal. I mean, I, I think all writers appreciate that um, it's a risk to put anything down and it's hard and you never know if it's going to be good or not. And so in some ways, writers are equal when they sit down before the page. Obviously, there's all kinds of inheritances and backstories and pressures that apply differently. Um, but when it comes to writing, um, a, a first-time writer can write a poem as great as a Nobel Prize winner. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's the, one of the exciting and thrilling things about being an editor is you never know um, what something is going to be until you read it. And my hope was to make a journal that was to some degree democratic in its space. It was also a goal to make it non-geographically specific. And, you know, in, in the past, a lot of these literary magazines have been centered in metropolitan areas around the, mm -hmm. the globe, Paris, yeah. London, New York. And I live in New York most of the time. Um, but I am from Sacramento, California, and I very much feel um, like the rest of the, the world that doesn't live in those cities, which, by the way, is most of the world, should feel at home in the pages yeah. of a literary magazine. And so I, I wanted that to be to be the case. And it's the greatest Trojan horse strategy in the world is to have writers that everyone loves that are writing great material, um, whether it's a poem or a story. And then, you know, someone reads Gassan Zaktan because Lydia Davis's name is on the cover mm -hmm. or the first issue of Freeman's also had Fatin Abbas, who just recently uh, published her first novel, which um, was excerpted uh, eight and a half years ago in Freeman's. It's a It can take quite a while. Um, and my hope was that magazine would be that thing for, mm -hmm. for writers, yeah. where they could try out ideas. And, and picking up on that is the, um, the 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 real sort of determinedly international dimension as well. Like, I kind of have a feeling with a lot of, particularly in the Anglophone world, it's different um, elsewhere. But there's with translated fiction, it almost has its own kind of, often its own kind of carved off area. Like whether that be in sort of in bookshops or at book fairs or in sort of like the people who are interested in it or the, like the prizes or whatever. And again. There's, there's not this kind of uh, hiving off. Like you have you have a lot of Anglophone stuff. You also have a lot of translated stuff. You have even people who are writing, you know, in English, even if if, if that's not their first language. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about the the importance for you to kind of, uh, I guess, kind of break down those barriers that tend to exist in um, in publishing and bookselling? Well, we're not the same age, but we're in the same um, zip code, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, you're in like the 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 18th arrondissement and I'm in the the 20th or something, <laughs> but you know if you remember those record stores that you used to go into and there was that dreaded category of world music mm -hmm. and it, it was kind of absurd once you realize that basically everything which was not from your nation was at least in America grouped into world music yeah and that could be everything from uh, you know Middle Eastern music Nancy Arjam ska music dubstep i mean it was it was a sign of the provincialness of the categories that we lived in and i think the literature suffers under those categories greatly uh you know and, until someone breaks out of that category they're they're in that dreaded space of worthy and translated um and my hope was that just by simply putting people together um it could 
it could break down the list because as a kid, you know, or as a person who falls in love with books, you don't sit there and think, ah, I'm reading Antoine saint Exupéry, a, a, a translated <laughs> child's novella. I'm, right. th this, this is such, such worthy work. You just get, you know, swept away by the, the gorgeousness of that, that story and the, the drawings. And hmm. I, I wanted to, to have that um, experience in the pages of Freeman's and, Hopefully it, 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 has, it has happened. Okay, so now we're going to hear from the um, Mieko Kawakami piece read by um, the translator Hitomi Yoshio. Uh, John, can you tell us a little bit about, um, about this writer and the process of getting the, the piece translated for, for Freeman's? I first heard Miyoko Kawakami read in Tokyo about 14 years ago. Uh, she was then more of a performer um, and a singer than a poet, although she was already that. And I was just transfixed by the sound of her voice. And we spoke through a translator and I began what has since been one of the most rewarding editing relationships of my life. And that I watched as her pieces were translated over the years by a variety of translators. And she finally met a, happened upon two or three that have been truly great for her. Um, and one of them is Hitomi Yoshio, who will be reading um, this short story that's in this issue. And Miyako has two kinds of short stories, at least two. Um, one is a long kind of submerging piece that I think unfolds in the shadow of or in the spirit of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, the sort of telltale heart, I think, would be the model for this kind of story um, in the Future of New Writing issue, we published one of those, an extraordinary short story, a long short story about a woman married to a salary man mm -hmm. um, who loses his job. And um, as a result, they're going to lose their house. And the house is the center of that woman narrator's the protagonist's identity. And so she comes to a conclusion about what to do to make sure that she's never separated from the house. Um, the story in the conclusions issue is her other kind of story. It's a, it's a brief, almost work of flash fiction in which um, you see a, a character, in this case, a woman who is in, a, in an abusive relationship um, in, a kind of, in a kind of glance. Um, we meet her um, and she's trying to figure out what to do um, to get out of the situation that she's in. Let's have a listen. Embroidery Thread by Mieko Kawakami, translated by Hitomi Yoshio. Pain. Masako is in pain. Even though she's never been hit before, she's been in pain for a long, long time. From the outside, the scars aren't visible. But if you could wrap her body in a large piece of white cloth, there'd be a number of purple marks on it, as if on the inside were a bunch of rotting grapes dripping with juice. Because of the pandemic, Masako was laid off from her part-time job at the deli. There was nothing she could do about it. It wasn't just her, others too. But she couldn't tell her husband. Whatever the reason, she knew it would only make things worse. So Masako leaves the house at nine in the morning as usual and kills time until evening. She's grateful for the warm weather so she can sit on a bench. 
Coffee shops were difficult. She has to keep ordering drinks to stay, and what's more, she's afraid of the staff who stare at her. Benches, on the other hand, are much more comfortable. No one pays attention to her, and no one complains when her water bottle is empty. When her back starts to ache, she stretches and walks to the Uniqlo store, 20 minutes away. She walks through the entire store slowly and thoroughly, and then she moves on to the drugstores. She goes from one store to the next, reading each label and noting the price in her head. Whenever she comes to an intersection, she takes time to watch the traffic lights change color. Then she returns to the bench and eats a rice bowl wrapped in plastic. Her husband, five years older, had drifted from one job to another until he finally gave it all up four years ago to start an izakaya bar, which went out of business this past spring. He was always losing money with the few customers he had, but the business was brought to an abrupt end by the pandemic, leaving behind only debt. Masako somehow knew that things would have gone wrong with or without the pandemic. Her husband was good-natured and daring enough to think about starting his own izakaya, but he was also a helpless coward. As soon as someone pointed out his ignorance or mistake, he would lose his temper and lash out. He couldn't help hurting others as much as he'd been hurt himself. Masako didn't know why she was living with this man or how she came to live with him in the first place. She must have gone through the relationship with open eyes. She just couldn't recall how it had all happened. There were countless times when she felt regret. She felt pain in so many places. But she kept reminding herself that it was because she was weak. She'd never been hit after all. There was not even a trace of blood. The pain must be her own fault. So much of what her husband said to her seemed right. Useless, incompetent. Why can't you do such a simple thing? Stupid, bad luck, totally worthless. You don't understand anything. Still, in the early days of living together, Masako felt a contradiction in her husband's endless sermon one night and timidly pointed it out to him. At that moment, he put his finger around her neck and tore off the necklace, a memento from her late mother, which she'd always kept close. Masako had bought the necklace with her first salary as a gift for her mother, who had raised her single-handedly and couldn't afford any luxuries. Her heart stopped then and there. Sitting on the bench, Masako hears all kinds of voices. Mothers playing with their small children, lovers peering into their smartphones, students chatting away. If you get infected, there's no point telling anyone. You'd have to quarantine, of course, but it's better to keep quiet. Think about how your child would get bullied. I know, I know, honestly. You just pretend it's a cold and stay in bed. The two women look around to see if anyone is listening. 
but when they see Masako, they ignore her and continue talking. Masako too pretends not to hear. It's still only two o'clock. How many hours are there in a lifetime? She tried to count them as a child once and came up with a number, but now she couldn't remember it. The wind blows so strong it sweeps everything upward. Torn pieces of wrapping paper, scattered leaves, plastic bags. They all float away somewhere, somewhere other than here. But no matter how strong the wind blows, Masako's body doesn't move. Don't forget to call my brother. She remembers her husband's words. Masako had no siblings. Her mother was dead and she was all alone. Now that her husband had lost his business and had nothing to do but stay home all day, he'd instructed her to call his older brother and ask him for money. It's better if you do it. Easier for him to help you than me. She stares at her phone screen. If I tap the number with my finger, he might pick up. But what would I say? How do I bring up such a thing? How much money do I ask for anyway? Don't mess that up, her husband had told her. Just get the money. He owes me big time, you know. At least I have someone to ask for help. Look at you. There's no one you can depend on, not even one relative or a friend. She can't get herself to press the call button. When Masako graduated from vocational school, she couldn't find a job and had to work part-time to make ends meet. She had no money. It's not like she had spent it all. She lived day to day, just getting by. She was honest and never cheated anyone. The jobs she held were not complicated, but she worked as hard as she could, in factories, in dry cleaners, in noodle shops. One day led to another, and here she was. She never made her own choices, but she never refused anything either. Was that a bad thing? Is that where things went wrong? Lucky you, you have it easy. Her husband mocks her when he gets drunk. She recalls his words. Lately, it's been happening a lot. His lectures would last for hours even an entire night. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm going crazy. You have it easy, you know. You lived your whole life without using your brain. That's the thing about you women. No responsibilities. Have you ever seen a homeless woman? That says something. Women have it easy. Maybe he's right, Masako thinks. I can go out on a walk. I have a house that shelters me from the wind and rain. I'm not injured or bleeding anywhere. I can breathe. There are people in worse situations, people who are suffering more than I am. Masako thinks about how lucky she is that she has nothing or no one to protect. It's almost time. Whether she comes home late or early, her husband will be in a bad mood. Masako gets up and walks back the way she came.
something catches her eye by the side of the road. As Masako approaches, she sees that it's a skein of embroidery thread, new, shiny, and white, with the binding still attached. Someone must have dropped it. Masako stares at it, hesitates for a moment, then picks it up. As she walks, she unravels the thread. She wraps it around her index finger more and more tightly until the circulation stops and her fingertip turns purple. Then she chuckles to herself. No luck dying with embroidery thread. The end. I let's move on to um this this the issue the final issue itself now you chose the theme um conclusions uh which in a way I guess is the most unsurprising theme you might have chosen for the final issue but I think uh, I mean from from the moment readers begin your introduction we get a sense that it's a um yeah the the approach to conclusions is going to be um as surprising and as original as the approach to all of the other themes um throughout the the 10 issues was there a little bit of hesitation on your part about having such a kind of, um, let's say, initially unsurprising theme for the concluding issue of Freemans? Not really, because it, the the title comes from a story that Sasha Hemman, of course, mm-hmm. tells yes. about his family and about his father um, at the end of family visits, you know, when there's a sort of pause that descends, just saying conclusions, like, <laughs> what have we come to at the end of this? And it's, it, it captures that story, the many different meanings that a conclusion can have. It can be an ending. It can be a summary judgment. Um, it can be multi- multiple in the sense that everyone can come to different conclusions about mm-hmm. a similar shared event. Um, and that was the greatest starting point for this because, um, you know, a, a, a family visit um, ripples. You know, if you go mm-hmm. home and you have a, a, a meaningful visit with your with, with your parents or brothers or sisters or whatever, you remember it um, and it lives inside you. Uh, and the, the word endings to me was not the right one because it feels like um, a hard bracket. Right. Um, whereas conclusions um, has a kind of watery ripple and the, the way that um, time and experience does. Conclusions. Since the early 90s and the war in Bosnia, my parents have lived in Canada while I have lived in the United States. When I visit them with my family, we stay only for a few days. The night before our departure, my father might sit down on the sofa in the living room, a Western showing on TV, and say, Conclusions. I know, of course, what that means. He wants to draw conclusions from our stay because he has a need to know what actually happened, what we have understood or achieved in our time together. Conclusions are closure to him, allowing him to process the imminent loss related to yet another parting from the people he loves. At first, his demand for conclusions was annoying to me, as such parental quirks often are to intolerant children. But then, as per the usual process, it became an amusing story I would tell, which then naturally led to my doing the same thing, except ironically. 
It didn't take long before I started feeling an unironic need to demand conclusions in similar situations and also to escape the compulsion to do so, lest I become like my father. As all adult children know, there is no way to win that struggle. Eventually, we do things our parents did, even if we swore never to do any of them. During the pandemic, I started producing music under the alter ego Cello Hemon and released nine singles in 2021 and 2022, the last of which was entitled Conclusions, and it was not ironic. The track concluded the first cycle of Cello's music, but it was also related to the reconfiguration of my, and perhaps our, relationship with time, wrought by the pandemic and the catastrophe of Trumpism. As every Bosnian knows, trauma splits time into the before and the after, whereby the before becomes inaccessible and available only as a reflective narrative, or even as blatant delusional nostalgia. Make my life great again. The need to draw conclusions is really a desire to convert what has just happened into memories as soon as possible, before the next unquestionably oncoming trauma, and get as much from the experience as possible before moving deeper into the after, where things will not only feel less real, but will also become a mark of loss. A demand for conclusions is an expression of a desperate hope to hoard love for the future, which will be marked by loss. For the last couple of years, I have increasingly felt that we are in the midst of a cataclysmic global rupture climate change and the related pandemic, the apocalyptic intensity of fascism, the pathetic weakness of Western democracies rooted in delusions of grandeur, and the fact that they cannot, because they don't want to, become systems of full inclusion, so they're reverting to the default, exclusion complete with misogyny and racism. I have an intense feeling that everything I love is ending, literature, writing, Music, soccer, skiing, my body, Bosnia, you name it. This is in fact the end of time and you have to be a tech bro or a fascist or both to think that we are not at a precipice of a cataclysmic loss. The question then becomes why write and publish or do anything since it won't make a damn difference one way or another. And the answer is love for language, for imagination, for all those who precede us and all the less lucky ones who will come after us for humanity, for, for conclusions still bespeak a faith in the future, even if a limited one. One day we will unfold these conclusions as stories or music and we will know that we have lived and loved and we might recall and experience again the joy of being together. And that gave me the, the entry point through which to have pieces about breakups like Lana mm. Bastisdich, the short story writer. Yes. Um, it, or, you know, the long aftermath of breakups, uh, those, these poems from the 10th century um, that Wendy Chen has translated by um, a poet, Li Xingbao, I think is how you pronounce mm -hmm. her, her name. She's sort of like the Sappho of, of ancient Chinese poetry. Um, as widely regarded as Li Po and was like many ancient poets, a drunk and was often, at least judging by these poems and the poems I've read of hers, heartbroken mm. and they're fantastic. And it's insane how um, present her voice sounds as she's uh, writing these, these poems of longing and heartbreak to, you know, missing lovers. Uh, yeah. 
so that that was just yeah. the entry point and then it, it ripples from there yeah and there's also that sort of um very important ambiguity to the the term conclusions as well because obviously you know it can it can be a synonym for endings but there's also that sense of kind of um of sort of fixed ideas or arriving at an idea or sort of like having a sort of uh, uh an opinion i guess about something um there's a moment where you write in the introduction not the freedom to come to conclusions but to live in a world in which we know conclusions are nowhere near enough to sustain us um and that really i think resonated to me in a way when looking back over the um the 10 issues of freeman's which um I think I was trying to think of this earlier. I think I pretty much read all of them cover to cover, which is, you know, I, I'll confess. Oh, Adam, under. that's so that's that's the nicest thing to hear. <laughs> but also pretty unusual for me in literary journals. I should probably um, I should probably confess. And I think that it seemed to capture something about Freeman's that sort of um, determination to to sort of open up this kind of interrogating, questioning. Uh, open approach to life rather than to uh, to give any specific opinion or any sort of fixed idea of, of how the world is. Well, think about all your um, most intense memories of experience. They're, they're not often of things that you knew in advance would happen exactly as they happen. They're often <laughs> of things that happen that you don't expect to happen or that that unfold differently than you expected, whether it's a person as their personality and character is revealed to you um, or actually a single event and its, mm -hmm. and its aftermath. And so, and so one of the qualities of life and of experience I hoped the magazine would put in its pages um, would be that provisionalness, mm -hmm. you know, that rather than having um, something nailed to the page, um, you know, the best writers about life, you know, I, I think of Christopher Isherwood, right. for example, and his ability to capture characters as these sort of moving portraits they weren't leopardologist style pinned to the page through three main qualities. Even if they were the characters defined by qualities like his landlord and goodbye to Berlin, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, her sort of histrionics that doesn't entirely define her. You know, she's also sometimes unexpectedly generous. She's mm -hmm. also sometimes bigoted. She, she's sometimes vulnerable. She's sometimes really warm hearted and his ability to have this, um, multifaceted provisional quality to her feels like life because you never know mm. what you're going to get from people. And, um, I, I you know, the, the hope was to try to give writers the space and the themes broad enough to, for them to, to do that in their own way. So next up, we're going to hear from uh, Rebecca Mackay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how this piece came to came to appear in Freeman's? Of course. Uh, Rebecca Mackay was almost the one who got away, as in I was reading her short stories over the years. I think she was in Best American four years in a row. I mean, some absurd mm -hmm. <laughs> record like that. And along the way, she, of course, made herself into a major novelist. Um, and I had never quite had the right theme for her. Um, and so I, I've I really came to her pretty early uh, as soon as conclusions was clear to be the theme here. And she said, ah, I have actually the exact right story. Mm -hmm. um, and Rebecca Mackay's family um, is from Hungary. Her father was born there. Um, her grandfather uh, worked in the government um, and died and wanted to have his ashes um, interred and brought back home to Hungary and 
put put in um, <laughs> basically put in 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 a river. Um, and that's complicated by the fact that first she has to transport them, but then along the way, she begins to think about the fact that her father, her grandfather was involved in, in some truly kind of terrible things in the history of um, Hungarian civic life. And, and she begins to wonder what her duty is um, here as a person, as an ethical citizen, whether her duty as a granddaughter trumps her duty uh, as a moral individual. Great. Here we go. The Scattering. My grandfather, not a simple man, had a complicated final wish. That his only child, my father, pour a third of his ashes in the Danube, a third in the Pacific, a third in Lake Michigan. Budapest was his original home, Hawaii his adopted one, and my father and sister and I lived in Chicago. It had a fine ring to it, this watery triad. I was 15 when he died in 1994 and hadn't seen him in years, a mercy since his final days were spent in squalor and extreme, sometimes violent, senility. His last chapter sounded like cosmic payment for wrongs done, a punishment best reserved for the afterlife. A visitor described him in those years when he wouldn't eat and couldn't die as an Auschwitz skeleton. I remember him as a playful yoga instructor who lived on the beach, one who'd blow raspberries inside my elbow and work my arm like a well pump, filling me with aloha. This was the same man who, as a member of parliament in 1939, authored the second Hungarian anti-Jewish law. Later, he spoke out against the Nazis, anti-Hitler and anti-Semitic sentiments being perfectly capable of coexisting, and was jailed by the Gestapo. Gestapo prison was improbably where he discovered yoga. If anyone ever contained multitudes, if anyone needed more than one body of water to tell his life's story, it was this guy. My father and stepmother flew to Honolulu to settle his affairs and tossed the first third of the ashes off a boat. Back in Chicago, my sister and I were summoned to my father's apartment where he pulled out another third in a Ziploc bag. Human ashes weren't like I'd thought. The soft ashes in the fireplace come from wood. These ashes were mostly bone, some small pieces like cat litter and some longer unmistakable splinters. In the fall of 2022, while in Berlin for research, I visited the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. I learned that in the camp's early days, administrators sold the ashes of executed prisoners back to their families. Except, of course, they were never the correct ashes. Perhaps the families told themselves they were the right ones, or perhaps they understood they were paying for the commingled remains of many departed souls, all of whom deserved burial. That night in 1994, we walked onto a pier, and it was dark, no one stared, each tossed handfuls of ashes to the waves. On the way back, my father handed me the Ziploc to throw in a city trash can. My grandfather's wish for the final third of the ashes would have been nearly impossible a few years earlier, but by the 1990s, Hungary had opened up and it was no longer dangerous for my father, a refugee failing the failed 1956 revolution, to return. He ended up retiring to Budapest in 2015 and died there in early 2020. That was difficult timing, and my sister and I missed his funeral. 
I was only able to return that fall alone to sort through his things and visit his grave. My grandmother, married just three years to my grandfather, was a notable author. Her grave is a national protected site, and before his death, my father had to arrange special dispensation for his ashes to be interred in his mother's plot. Imagine a raised garden bed, coffin-sized, stone perimeter, dirt in the middle. My grandmother's memorial, a traditional Transylvanian wooden monument called a kopiafa, towers over a plaque for my father. My stepmother arranged a cab to the cemetery. Before we left, she pulled out a small wooden box, the kind you might get in a Hawaiian souvenir shop. She said, we never put these in the river. She lifted the lid inside another Ziploc bag, the last third of the ashes, 26 years later. I'd had no idea. The most sense I can make of it, on previous visits to Budapest, they hadn't wanted to deal with ash transportation. Almost as soon as they moved back, my father became too weak to walk much and wouldn't have sent his wife to do this alone. My grandfather's bones wouldn't have been the only ones in the Danube. For one thing, in the last winter of the war, the Hungarian Arrow Cross Party shot Jewish prisoners on the banks where they'd fall into the river. When bullets were scarce, they tied two prisoners together. They shot only one, but both plummeted into the water, and the second would drown. You might think my stepmother would suggest we cross one of the many bridges connecting Buda to Pest and pour the ashes off the side so they could flow past Parliament as my grandfather wanted. Instead, she stuck the ashes and a soup spoon into her purse and announced that we could simply add these to the gravesite. You might think I protested, but I know better than to argue with the woman. And I was fairly stunned. The new public cemetery home to three million dead, is the largest in Central Europe. Mazes of tended and untended graves, kiosks selling candles and flowers, and, right before All Souls Day, thousands of visitors. At the grave next to my grandmother's, a family came and went. Then another branch of the same family came and went. When the area was clear, my grandmother handed me the spoon for digging and the Ziploc. I registered three problems as I dug. One, this was still a protected national site and we were breaking the law. Two, this was very much not the Danube. Three, I never knew my grandmother. She died when I was a baby, but I couldn't imagine that after 43 years of eternal rest, she'd suddenly welcome her ex's ashes. I decided this arrangement would be temporary. I tried to memorize the spot so that whenever my sister and I returned, we wouldn't have to dig long before we found the bone shards. We could drop them off Margaret Bridge, and they'd flow south. A final wish was a final wish. My grandfather did not technically murder anyone. He dropped no bombs, flipped no switch. He condoned no death camp. What happened would have happened without him, but he was there. His words became law and the laws flowed down the Danube from Parliament and into every village. He unleashed the sentences that begat more sentences that became life sentences. It was right after Budapest that I went to Berlin and to Sachsenhausen. Our guide, a sweet man, could emotionally handle only one tour a week. 
I asked what the hardest part was, and he said every few tours someone would mention, often partway through, that their father died there, their uncle, their great-grandmother. These descendants had been denied ashes, a body to bury. What they had instead was a place, a cursed and impossibly heavy place. I've been left with the opposite, ashes and no home for them. They've wandered the earth for a quarter century like a sad and angry ghost, and their journey isn't done. They ask questions I've never had answers for. This mess of a man, where do you put him? The fragmentary remains of his legacy, are you allowed to let them go? What on earth, on this wretched earth, do you do with it all? We talked about, um, obviously, Alexander Hemmings' presence um, throughout Freeman's. This issue itself is kind of bracketed by two pieces of writing from uh, Barry Lopez. Um, and and you talk about your your relationship, your friendship with Barry Lopez a little in the in the introduction. Could you go into that a little bit here? Like, what? When did you realize that that you know that Lopez was going to exist as kind of almost the two parentheses that uh, that hold this this issue together. Well, that's a good question because it's, I initially only had the end piece, which mm-hmm. um, I've it was a poem, his only poem, written in his lifetime. It was written as a kind of fundraiser for Copper Canyon Press mm-hmm. um, out on the west coast of the United States, um, and it was a manifesto about how to live mindfully in a world of environmental destruction, um, in a world that um, it was more pressing then, but it's coming back to us thanks to Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. We were thinking much more about uh, the nuclear destruction. Um, and I, I saw that poem because I went to um, Barry's house where he lived for 50 years for his, his memorial. And the poem was on a desk in his study. Um, and his wife, his widow, uh, Deborah Gwartney, sent it to me afterwards so I could have it. And then I thought, why don't I publish this? This is extraordinary. Sometimes uh, you see poems. I think of the work of Ann Carson sometimes in this regard, you know, where there's um, a kind of scissoring between the the illogic of language and and the oracular quality of the mind that expresses itself through language. And this poem by Barry does that, where it moves between um, kind of aphorism and and the, the possibilities that language makes. Um, Anyway, uh, in the course of making the issue, um, his his widow, uh, Deborah Gwartney, um, who's a wonderful writer herself, sent me this piece that she found in Barry's papers. Um, and Barry was a friend for a long time. We talked a lot on the phone. We, Towards the end of his life, we spent a lot of time going to landscapes that meant something to him. He shared things with me about his life and about writing that um, I will never forget. Uh, he was so generous and a great listener a great supporter of other writers. Mm. Uh, and he also just was a terrific observer. You never really felt him observing, but I think partly because with Barry, a lot of his observing was done outside. Um, right. It was it was done to forget his centrality to the planet um, and to see what it was like um, if he was very quietly sitting there and listening to the way it persisted. And so in the course of going through his papers, Deborah found this essay about walking home. Um, 
in the way that I imagined Barry walking leisurely, mm. noticing things along the river, a salmon river in Oregon, where he lived, as I mentioned, for 50 years. It's just exquisite. And so I thought, why not um, uh, put those at the beginning of end and end of the issue? Because I think all of us probably agree that literary magazines are ephemeral devices. Mm -hmm. It's not. It'd be nice if they weren't, but most of them are. Um, but I think also us also all of us might agree that it would be nice if the planet were not ephemeral. Right. Um, if we didn't hasten its its destruction or our own destruction. And so I thought in in a way that maybe beginning and ending the issue with with those two pieces made a lot of sense because it put in in um in the in the frame what's really worth trying to preserve. Mm. It's interesting um there's a couple of things I want to pick up there. The first is to begin a literary journal an issue of a literary journal with an article about walking home I find really fascinating because I think there's there's something about that that idea of endings and homecomings, um, which resonates obviously you know throughout uh, the history of literature, certainly the history of Western literature since um, since Homer, and in a way it's sort of the homecoming again. That idea of conclusions feels like both the end of something and the but also the beginning of of um, of something new. And I think that Barry Lopez piece really um, yeah really sets that that tone very well i love i i recently thanks to the new translation of emily wilson been reading homer mm. again and the odyssey is just endlessly beautiful and yeah fascinating and it does have ripples in, and not just i think into western literature i'm there's a an author in linnea axelson a sammy uh, writer that lives in sweden um who wrote a novel called ednon a novel mm. in verse about three generations of a sammy family and I excerpted it in the in the previous issue on animals, um, and it's basically about their their attempt to come home when their home is being erased through colonial forces. Mm -hmm. And Homer was essential to her. Um, and you know the, the the ways that we move through the world, I think, creates narrative. Mm -hmm. And you know, walking has been an, a, a fairly big part of Freeman's over the years. There's a one of the other pieces I love across the issue is Garnett Cadigan's piece in the um, in the opening issue um, called uh, Black and Blue, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it, he changed. It was originally called Walking While Black, um, and it's about walking uh, as a Jamaican man across various cityscapes, and how growing up and walking in Kingston, it was far less a, a novel <laughs> thing for someone <laughs> like him to be walking. Um, in, in public spaces. And then he moved to New Orleans and then he became the dangerous thing. And he moved to New York City after Katrina. And then it was a whole new meaning of being in, in, the, in the public. And so one, one thing I hoped Freeman's could also do is um, respect the many different ways that geography and public space um, impacts us um, mm -hmm. as people, uh, the, the, our ability to live there and um, the stories that um, sharing public space makes possible and to some degree necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the in our recently um, published interview book uh, here from the bookstore, we actually used something uh, that you said um, in during one of the the, the Freeman's events. Um, and I'm going to I'm, I'm, I don't have it in front of me here, so I'm going to I'm going to misquote it. But you do talk about the. The importance of public spaces, the importance of coming together, and the importance of bookshops in 
in fostering that. And at the beginning of this conversation, you also you mentioned how it was those kind of events that inspired um, Freemans. Would you talk a little bit just about the importance events have played in the life of Freemans since you you put it like I know we've probably done what five or six together I think over the years maybe maybe more and I know you've done them uh, you know around the the US and the UK like what does it how does it feel to to get this this journal out there and to to spend the evenings with people in these communal spaces discussing it well it it's kind of an <laughs> it's ridiculous to say this but there have been 500 events Wow. Um, okay. In various wow. countries around the world, you know. Um, and I thought from... we were special, John. <laughs> <laughs> You're the most important. Uh, <laughs> but and one of my goals in in having those events is to put people together that aren't always put together mm -hmm. um, to make possible conversations um, that ought to happen. But I think often because of the ways people writers are categorized, it they aren't put together. So mm -hmm. Maza Mengesti and Richard Russo. Uh, participated mm -hmm. in an event together. Um, in another event, it was um, Miyako Kawakami, Daniel Mendelssohn, and the poet Valjina Mort. Um, wow, yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 you think about how um, how much experience each one of their bodies holds, and mm -hmm. how much uh, language each one of their their minds um, has has access to. Mm -hmm. And I, I think those conversations are electrifying when they can happen. Mm -hmm. um, and then the 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 the, the matter that rises to the fore is okay what kind of acoustics will we have and to me the, the best acoustics in the world are in bookshops mm -hmm. not literally i mean sometimes they're quite <laughs> falling down and you know cramped and a little bit hot and uh, but i think um the, the 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 metaphorical acoustics that you you have in a bookshop is wonder curiosity um you know multiplicity you know you, you don't ever go into a bookshop and see with a few exceptions for like say pop-up shops, 10 books right. repeated over and over again, you usually see several thousand. Um, and so my hope when um, having these events was, was to have that, that the, the conversation be in that spirit um, of let's, let's find out what we don't know. Um, let's hear stories that we can't imagine being told. Let's see juxtapositions that we haven't heard before. And, um, hopefully, most surprising. Let's let's find out of those juxtapositions not um, cacophony, but um, an interesting kind of music. So now we're going to hear a reading from um, the poet Sandra Cisneros. Now Sandra was here in July and gave one of the most astonishing, <laughs> powerful uh, performances I think I've ever seen at the bookshop. Um, John, would you tell us a little bit about Sandra's piece in the in the issue? Yeah, over the last 30 years, Sandra's been writing new poems, sticking them under her bed. Um, and this poem uh, in the latest issue is actually a recent one. Um, and it's 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 like the poems in Woman Without Shame, her, her mm -hmm. latest book. They're poems that are coming to grips with being at a certain point in her life um, and having some of her expectations tilted a little bit. And in the poem, um, Sandra, the poet, is, is sort of walking downstairs at the end of day and a man coming upstairs um, whispers a compliment at her. It's not vulgar. Um, uh, and typically in the past, uh, she would have, I think, paused or, or felt a, a little bit 
set set off by the the, the comment, but at at this point she she receives it in the in the spirit of a compliment, and also knows that she's worth it. Um, mm. And it's it's a, an exquisite sort of satori moment um, captured in just a very few lines. Yeah, let's have a listen. Un gordito calls me hermosa, even though he doesn't realize I turn 68 next Tuesday. Charmed at these heights by what would have enraged me as a girl, he was coming home from work, dusty as a bolillo. Mason? Baker, carpenter, flesh jiggling on the descent, boots pounding cobblestones, making his way downhill as I climbed up my street, held his breath till he brushed past. Hermosa bloomed from his tongue. Some days, with dark glasses and jewelry, my hair down like Cher, I feel ready for my comeback tour. I remember particularly an event we had here um, shortly after the election of Trump, and I think shortly before his inauguration, if I'm getting the date right, where on stage we had um, Zizi Packer, uh, the African-American uh, novelist, Nathan Englander, uh, the American-Israeli novelist and Sasha Hemen as well, the uh, Bosnian-American uh, novelist. And that was almost, it was sort of, it was in part sort of put together uh, in, you know, in, intentionally to address the the subject matter, but also, of course, when you're bringing writers to Paris, it's always, you know, it's, it's who's in town as well. And I remember being so struck by the the three different perspectives from these writers on what had just happened um and what was in well in, what was in in in, prog- in progress um was one of the most um intense and compelling evenings i i spent in this bookshop it was really mind-blowing watching each person articulate the reasons why um what had just happened uh echoed down their own experience mm-hmm. you know nathan was um talking about how you know his experience living in israel and his experience growing up with with family members um touched by or or killed by the holocaust his first experience of that build up to the election was i have to keep my head down Mm -hmm. um i have to uh, am i brave enough to talk and speak aloud because in the past what happens in these moments is you can wind up um disappeared or worse Mm -hmm. um Zizi Packer, if I recall correctly, was this emergency has been happening in America for quite some time now for Black mm-hmm. people, um, and so this isn't that surprising to me, um, and it may not change that many things for Black people. It might just make it a little clearer that this is how things are and have mm-hmm. always been. Um, and Sasha, as always, came to it from the experience in the in the context of um, Sarajevo and growing up there and watching war come and fascism and watching its creep. Mm-hmm. And so he was trying our, then, um, he had been trying for some time to warn of the rising threats to democracy. Yeah. Uh, and all their, pro- the, all their perspectives were, um, completely valid. 
they overlapped and they differed. And yet it was um, not even the beginning <laughs> of uh, the Trump years. And I think we redid that panel at the at the end of the election, mm. if you recall, to yes, try to talk yeah. about where we were going to go from here. Um, and I fear that we'll have to do it again in, in two years. Yeah. Um, on that subject of, of, um, of fear and sort of impending um, apocalypse, perhaps, I um, there was a line uh, from Sasha's piece where he says, um, he writes, I have an intense feeling that everything I love is ending. Literature, writing, music, soccer, skiing, my body, Bosnia, you name it. Um, and I mean, you know, I guess uh, in a sense, he, you know, <laughs> once says he'd probably put Freeman's among this as well, because like it's been, uh, it's been an important home for him and a lot of writers over the last um, eight years and 10 issues. Would you mind talking a little bit about why you decided to end it now? And I, I say this in, also in the context of a lot of literary magazines stopping uh, at the moment. I mean, it's only we're recording a few days after the White Review, the British mag a British journal announced that they were going to go on a kind of semi-permanent hiatus um, from publication. And I know there's been a few um, a few different magazines in the US which have also um, also ceased publication. But this this feels, at least maybe I'm wrong, but this feels in it's more of a choice on your part to end it now rather than uh, sort of the market or, you know, sort of uncontrollable things forcing you out. But, but could you just reflect a little bit on the sort of ending in the current, the current context? It does feel like a time of endings, you know, there's a, all the data that was available to us and scientists were warning us about with, with regards to the environment has proven to be not just um, accurate, but the prognostications about where we were going um, proved to be true, you know, that in mm -hmm. fact, the climate is changing dramat dramatically um, and it will be harder and harder for us to live in it. And it feels like that is the primary experience right now. Um, it is the one that is touching us all um, in, in small ways and very, very large ones. And as a result, I think our bodies are vibrating with, with a kind of primal anxiety about this, um, one that is uh, enhanced and <laughs> accelerated by mm -hmm. the various forms of of fear accelerant that's poured into our bodies via the news, via politics, um, via threats to our, our lives and livelihoods and other things. Simultaneously, other things persist, you know, mm -hmm. landscapes persist, um, bodies, institutions persist. Um, and literary magazines have always been a, a precarious enterprise and sure. a lucky enterprise to some degree. And, and, you know, I'm sitting here, you can't see this, but I have, as a, a memory jostler in front of me, all 10 issues, mm. um, you know, it's, it's close to a million words um, at this point. And uh, it's a lot of luck to have put these various writers together in this particular order. Um, because as I mentioned, every time an issue started to come together, it was a very organic process by which a few pieces created the theme out of which grew new asks. And sometimes pieces would come in through left field, through, um, chance and circumstance. And as a result, I feel like I, I want to step away while my luck has been good. Mm -hmm. um, it's been it's been an astonishing run of luck to to work with this variety of writers. And it it feels like a, a generation, even though it's not generationally bracketed. Um, you know, some writers who've been in here have been in their their 80s and some have been in their 20s. Um, but there is um, a group of writers that 
feel like they're part of a magazine. Um, and I, I feel like at this point, the, the best thing to do for this group of writers is to put a bracket around them, a time bracket to say, this is, this is the last issue. They'll still be in bookshops. They'll still be in stores. You'll still be able to get them online. Um, but there just won't be any new ones. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sometimes the best thing to do to preserve um, the quality of singularity about an experience or a work of art or a relationship is to draw it to a close um, because otherwise the other option is endless growth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we know the two models of that. One is um, the, the, the form of capitalism we're in, look where that's leading us. And the other is, you know, sickness and, and cancer. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to be, be, be either one, I, you know, I, I want to, I want to, um, I want the magazine to, to be a kind of living thing still, but that is complete yeah. um, and uh, has the coherence and intensity and, and to some degree, um, otherness, not, not the otherness of othering, but the otherness of an object, you know, mm. that has its integrity. Um, of, of, a, of a finished thing um, in terms of its pages and, and its its actual physical uh, continuum. Mm -hmm. And it certainly has that. It is um, a remarkable achievement. That is almost all we've got time for. Um, Freeman's is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company. We have a stack of it uh, in store. I was, um, I was looking at it this morning. Um, and it, you can buy it from our website or you can buy it from your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever that may be. Um, before we go, though, John, uh, I was going to ask if you wouldn't mind reading the short manifesto uh, from Barry Lopez just to uh, just to conclude the podcast, because uh, I can't think of a, a better way to um, to send off Freeman's uh, into uh, into the world as this complete whole living thing than uh, than these these few words. A short manifesto by Barry Lopez. Port Townsend, Washington, July 13th, 1984. In our dealings with each other and with the natural world, we should cultivate an atmosphere of dignity and respect. With regard to the land, we should defer to principles of mutual obligation and courtesy. The power of the land is innate. Its value, if it must be assigned, is deeper and more subtle than we know. Its achievement does not require our permission, nor does it depend upon our compliance. We must announce that the economic dimensions of our national problems are not paramount, that our physical and spiritual well-being are of more enduring concern. We must agree that among the greatest of wrongs we can affect is to directly intervene in the process of biological evolution. As heinous must be considered the manufacture and deployment of nuclear weapons, these weapons promise to incinerate our dignity utterly. We need to discover that our grace resides in our generosity and our wisdom in a greater courtesy toward the mystery that contains us. John, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure indeed, Adam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, 
You can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.